and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 as we consider this morning a passage regarding the Lord's Supper for we will be doing that precisely this morning immediately following the service. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And I want us to commence our reading in verse 20. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord. When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in eating every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it, and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come. Therefore, or wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord today. God, we thank you, Lord, that we can open up the scriptures and find the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would again cleanse us from all sin. God, all wickedness of the flesh. That God, that you would fill us with your spirit. That God, the preacher and listener alike would be filled with your spirit. That God, that I might be filled with your spirit to preach with power. And that God, that you would give understanding to the words that are spoken. And those that are listening, oh God, that you would fill them with your spirit. That God, that they might receive the things that are spoken. And that God, we pray that as we consider this great passage. As we consider the great ordinance that you have given to thy church. That, oh God, that you would help us to understand a little more clearer what it is that we are doing here today. So, God, I pray that, God, that you give clarity of thought to my mind. 
And that God, that you would again give that unction from heaven that makes all the difference. But we ask all of this in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. There was a young man that attended a Roman Catholic high school. He heard one day an explanation of what Protestants believed regarding the Lord's Supper from a very close friend of his. And after hearing the difference, the Roman Catholic said this, So you believe the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus, whereas we believe it is a reenactment. And that is exactly the difference between what we are doing here today and what many will be doing today on this day. What we are doing this day is a remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What we are doing today is not a reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ. And this is the heart of the difference between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant view. For some reason, this ordinance that we are observing this morning has been distorted. It has been twisted. It has been abused greatly down through church history. And it has suffered at the hands of liturgy. It has suffered at the hands of ceremony and sacramentalism and church tradition. And like an onion, what we want to do today is peel the layers of superstition back in order that we might actually be able to see what the Lord taught in this passage is given to us by the Apostle Paul. As we approach this text here this morning, we find that Paul is writing to the Corinthians to correct many of their problems. As you know, the church at Corinth was a very carnal church. They are addressed as being carnal. In chapter 1, they are addressed as being carnal. In chapter number 3, and earlier in this chapter, he actually commends them. If you look with me in chapter 11 here in verse 2, he commends them. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances or the traditions as I delivered them to you. So here we find Paul commending them. But as he comes to this issue as it regards the Lord's Supper, he has no word of praise to offer them, but rather a word of rebuke, a word of correction. In verse 17, as he begins to discuss the Lord's table, he actually chides them in verse 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. And what's interesting is if you take the time and you just read through verse 17 to the end of the chapter, you will find this little phrase, come together, come together, again and again mentioned, which is significant as we approach the Lord's table. Because as we approach the Lord's table, we do this in a gathered assembly of God's people. And that's going to be significant as we continue through this passage. This carnal church had greatly abused the Lord's table. Just as many do today. And seeing this as one of the two ordinances of the church, of the Lord Jesus, it behooves you and I to understand its meaning and purpose. Baptism, according to our confession, and I believe according to scripture, is only to be administered once. You were baptized likely some time ago, and you might not 
remember too much about your baptism. But the Lord's Supper is administered frequently. Actually, in the early church, and it, the scripture seems to indicate that it was the practice of the early disciples and the early church and the teaching of the apostles that they observed this ordinance on the first day of the week, Acts 20 and verse number 7, the disciples gathered together upon the first day of the week to break bread. So this was a very frequent thing. And so it's, it appears to me very obvious that because of the frequency of it, it was quickly corrupted. The Lord's Supper must never lose its meaning or its message as it did here in Corinth. And our text gives strong warning to those who would partake of this table in an unworthy manner. Scripture says that those that do this unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That is a serious thing. Paul brings up the point that many have actually fell asleep, that is they died, because of their mistreatment of this table that is before us today. So in light of these solemn warnings, Paul charges them to examine themselves. And as we approach this table today, I ask you, have you examined your heart? Have you prepared yourself for the table? Is there open sin? Is there open rebellion in your heart as you come to the table? Are there things that have not yet been confessed unto God? That are there lying in your bosom that you just cannot manage to get rid of? I encourage you today before you come to this table, do business with God. Repent and make sure your heart is clean before him. Are you coming in an unworthy manner? And we will consider what that is the next few moments. Has your heart grown cold? And it looks like today is just another day that we observe the Lord's table. Oh, I forgot. It was the last Sunday of the weekend. Oh, yeah, we do the Lord's table. And you have come unprepared. And you see the Lord's table before you and the awe of it has left your heart. It has been eclipsed by the love of the world. So I want you to join with me today in this passage as we consider the Lord's Supper a solemn remembrance. And this is what we want to see today, that the Lord's Supper is a solemn remembrance. The first thing I want you to see with me in this passage is found in verse 20 through verse number 22. We find the corruption of the Lord's Supper. Very soon in the early church, in the very days of the apostles, the Lord's precious ordinances were already being corrupted. And how were they being corrupted? Well, in the case of Corinth, we see it in two primary uh, points. First, we see it was corrupted first by schism. Look with me in verse 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in or in congregation, I hear that there be divisions among you. And I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies or factions among you. 
that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Or when you come together in one place, it is not possible for you to eat the Lord's Supper is the understanding of the text here. So they were coming together to partake of the Lord's Supper. But he said, it's not really possible for you to do so. Oh, you're partaking of the supper, but you're not really partaking. And the reason is because there is schism and division amongst you. For any of us that have been part of a church for any length of time or been raised in church, we know that one of the greatest things that Satan loves to use to divide the church of the living God is division, schism. He loves to set this one over here against this one and this one back there against that one. He loves to sow discord among the brethren. And we find here that the early church was not able in the, in the book of Corinthians here to properly observe the Lord's table to the degree that God wanted them to because of the schism that had arisen. And this is clear from the beginning sections of this book. Look with me back in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. You will see that Paul addressed this immediately. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 11. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now, I, now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, or I am of Paulus, or I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here he's addressing division. One of the first things he does in addressing the church of Corinth is addressing their division. And their division is causing a corruption in the participation of the Lord's Supper. We find it again in chapter 3. In verse number 3. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? You know what division and strife is in a church? It's an indication of carnality. Carnal people in the church. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos but ministers by whom ye believe, even as the Lord gave to every man? There was division in this church. There were some that were following Paul. They said, we are followers of the Apostle Paul. Others said, no, we're followers of Peter. Others said, no, we're followers of Apollos. Others said, no, we're the more spiritual ones. We actually follow Christ. And there was this division in the early church here at Corinth that caused them not to be able to participate properly in the Lord's Supper. He said, because of this division, he said, when you come together into one place, it is not possible for you to partake of the Lord's Supper. Think about that. That's an amazing statement. Division in God's church. Oh, you might be participating in the Lord's Supper, but where there is division, you're not really participating. It is not possible for you to truly partake of the Lord's Supper as he desires you to. And because of these schisms and divisions that existed amongst God's people in this local church, when ye come together, 
into one place. It is not possible for you to eat the Lord's Supper. Those in Corinth ate the Lord's Supper, but they never truly ate the Lord's Supper. Schism among God's people disrupts and corrupts the table of the Lord. And so we must carefully examine the situation that we are in, the context where we are in today, and determine if there is a party spirit amongst us. You say, oh, we're a small group. That, that would never happen. That's not true. We must ask ourselves, is there a party spirit amongst us? Are we divided? Are we like the church of Corinth? And we are reached a state of carnality where we are striving and divided amongst ourselves. To be in a state of schism actually distorts the picture of unity that is to be seen in the Lord's Supper. I want you to turn back with me because Paul actually addressed the Lord's Supper as well in 1 Corinthians 10. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 17. He says, for we being many are one bread. Or seeing that we who are many are one loaf, one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. You know what the Lord's Supper represents? It represents our union with Jesus Christ. That we are united. We as a united body are united with the head. We are the one bread. And we have truly partaken of the one bread of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ. And here he says. That we being the one loaf or one body. And we are all partakers of that one bread. And so for there to be schism. In the local assembly. Distorts the picture of unity. That God desires there to be in the Lord's table. And you actually see unity. And it was this way in the early church as we were talking about earlier this morning. But as we come before the table there is a unity even seen in the elements. As we will get to it in the next few moments. But you have the bread that is before you. One loaf. And in the early church they didn't have multiple cups. They had one. The one bread, the one cup represented that they were one with Christ. That is what it represented. There is significance in the elements that Jesus gave and the way in which he gave them. In order that when you and I participate in them, we might recognize that we're not only one with each other, but we are one with Christ who died upon the cross for our sins. Now, to some people that not, might not amount to anything, but it is very significant. Something for us to consider. So if there be any schism, it is necessary to repent of it that the Lord's Supper can be truly enjoyed. So if there is schism and division in your heart. Before you come to this table, you need to get right. You need to ask the Lord to forgive you of the division and schism and division that is there in your heart. That you might truly participate in the Lord's table as he desires you to. So the first thing we see about their corruption is uh, their schism. The second thing we see is that they were going back to their roots of paganism. Notice what he says there in chapter number 11 again. And notice what he says in verse uh, number 21. For in eating, every one taketh before another his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. 
The Corinthians were from a largely pagan surrounding. Many of them were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And having not many teachers to guide them shortly after Paul's departure, they quickly began incorporating their old pagan practices into the worship of the Lord. And this is seen in many places around the world today. They incorporated into the Lord's Supper what was known as agapi or love feast. You might have heard this many times the early church, some of them had a feast connected with the observance of the Lord's Supper. And these quickly in the Corinthian church replaced the Lord's Supper entirely. And they quickly removed the Lord's Supper and they replaced it with this love feast. Let's all get together and just have a big meal and a big banquet. And we'll share with everyone. But quickly that even degenerated. Because we find here that there are rich people coming to the church at Corinth that are bringing provision for themselves and the poor are coming to the church and they have nothing for themselves. One is hungry and the other is drunken. And the idea is not necessarily or it could mean that he's actually drunk in the church because he drank so much wine. But the idea is that he is filled while the other is empty. And so there was this pagan influence. It was normal in these feasts to drink oneself into an intoxicated stupor. And the rich came with many provisions for themselves. And what they were doing is they were bringing their Greek worship of false gods because they actually had love feasts where they worshiped these false gods and offered sacrifices to these gods. And then after they offered sacrifice, they had a big love feast. And they were picking up on these pagan ideas. And we see in the church today how paganism has corrupted the Lord's Supper very closely. This is seen and clearly seen in the Roman Catholic Church. And within high church Protestantism. Within the Church of Rome there is a clear revival of old Babylonian paganism. In their mass. There is clear allusion to Babylonian mysticism connected with the love feast or sacrifices to false gods. And in the mass, what makes it all the more abominable is that they are saying that in the mass as the priest holds up the wafer and pronounces his Latin blessing upon it, that it literally becomes the body and the wine becomes the blood of the Lord Jesus. And it is a sacrifice again for sin. My friend, that is an abomination. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven. And he's there seated on God's right hand. And he's there seated until the time of restitution. And he does not descend, to heaven, descend from heaven down to the whim of a priest who holds up a wafer and offer himself as a sacrifice again. He does not do that. This feast, there is no sacrifice involved. Jesus offered one sacrifice that was perfect forever for sin. As we come to this table, there is no sacrifice. This is a remembrance feast. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 29, section 2, says the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one and only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. Jesus offered one perfect sacrifice forever. So we see that there was a corruption 
in the Corinthian church caused by schism and caused by paganism. And both of those things are seen not just in the church of Corinth, but is seen in the church today as well. And it is corrupting the worship of God through this ordinance of the Lord's table. So there's only one way to fix corruption. And it is to hit it, hit it head on with Bible doctrine. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul does. To address the corruption, he goes right into an exposition of what the Bible actually teaches, what Christ actually taught regarding the Lord's table. We find this in verse 23 through 25. So secondly, so first we had the corruption of the Lord's table. Now secondly, we have the institution of the Lord's table. In verse 23 through 25, we have seen its corruption. Now we want to consider its institution. Paul emphasizes that this instruction he received came directly from the Lord himself. Notice this in verse 23. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. So Paul, we know, is not there with Jesus, with the other twelve, when Jesus instituted this supper. He was not there with Christ. But he received this by revelation. Now we know... Uh, from various other passages, we don't know exactly when Paul received this revelation. We know that in 2 Corinthians that he had received many revelations. And because of this, God sent a thorn in his flesh to buffet him. Because lest he be exalted above measure and puffed up because of the revelation he, reserved, he received. Many believe that he received this revelation uh, maybe in the three years that he was in Arabia being taught of the Lord. But regardless of where he received this revelation, he received it. And this is a revelation directly from the Lord to the Apostle Paul. And here he says, I have received this. This is not something I'm piggybacking off of from the apostles. Uh, this is something that I have received directly from God himself. So how was this supper instituted? What was the background? Well, in verse number 23, we find the setting. And towards the end of the verse, he says that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. There's the setting of this institution. The twelve were gathered in an upper room to observe the Passover. But how did they get there? This was marked by divine provision and divine providence. As you know, Jesus, the great prophet... An omniscient God told them exactly who to look for. As we read in our scripture reading this morning from Luke 22. He said, you will find a man in the city bearing a pitcher of water in his hand. He said, you follow that man with a pitcher of water. And you go up to the door and said, the master says that we need to use your house. And what happened? He let them in and they had a large upper room that was furnished for them. When, when the place was made ready, Jesus appeared in their midst. His divine presence appeared. And far from the splendor of the temple of gold, Jesus and his disciples are gathered in a guest chamber in Luke twenty two eleven. Some would have you think that as we observe the Lord's table, that it is this great and luxurious and elaborate feast. And it requires 
holy vestments upon a man. That there must be the smell of incense in the air. That there must be all these various things. Holy garments, beautified buildings, burning candles, a melodious background music. All this it sets the stage for the observance of the Lord's table. But in the setting that we have before us when Jesus instituted it. It was just a simple upper room. It was as far as possible from any ceremony, any ritual, any formality of the temple. There was nothing elaborate about the place where Jesus instituted the table. This ordinance was instituted amid humble surroundings. But also it is set against the backdrop of betrayal. Where we see that Judas betrayed him. In Luke's account, we read that Satan entered into Judas, surnamed Iscariot. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. Jesus instituted this supper in the most simple of environments. So that this ordinance could be observed simply anywhere on earth. You know, there's a lot of places around the world that don't have fancy, elaborate gold buildings. There's a lot of places around the world that don't have priests that are decked in holy vestments. There's a lot of places around the world that don't have burning candles and holy incense and melodious background music. But Jesus made the setting perfect. Where anybody in any part of planet earth, no matter where his church is gathered together, could take the simple elements of bread and wine and a simple atmosphere and remember the Lord Jesus. This is beautiful. That Jesus made it so simple. But yet many people want to make it so convoluted and so complicated. Though set in the place of simplicity, it was met with great betrayal. Behind the precious small gathering lay a sinister plot to rid Christ from his disciples. All the simplicity, but all the majesty of it. Not just the simplicity, not just that it was, uh, not just its setting as we consider its institution, but consider its season. That as he established this table, the season that it was in, it was fitting that the Lord selected the Passover season to institute his supper. This supper that Christ would institute would be vastly different from the olden form, but find great parallel in significance. There is now for the people of God a greater sacrifice. There is a greater exodus. There is a greater way of escape. There is the Lamb of God before them that taketh away the sin of the world. And as God's people observe the supper, they are ever reminded of the great sacrifice upon Calvary's tree. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. So we find its setting, we find its season, but I want you to now notice with me its symbols. Notice we find in verse 23 and 24, the Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And in verse 25, he took the cup. In our passage, we find reference to both bread and the cup which contained the wine. 
In verse 24, you have the reference to bread. And here Christ uses a very simple but needful item for his people to associate with his finished work. He uses the emblem of bread to portray great spiritual truths to his people. We find again and again, particularly in John chapter number 6, that he is, according to John, the bread of God. That's what Jesus said. I am the bread of God. John 6, 41, I am the bread which came down from heaven. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. John 6, 51, if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. So in eating the physical bread that we have before us today, we are reminded that we have tasted of the spiritual bread from heaven. That we have ate of the bread of God. That there is the true bread that came down from heaven. And whosoever eats of this bread will live forever. And you and I have tasted of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I that have tasted of him, we have the promise of everlasting life. And as we come and we break the bread and we put it in our mouth and we taste the bread, we are mindful of what Christ has done for us. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and gracious to his people. And in the institution of this ordinance, Christ breaks the bread and then he distributes to them the bread. The breaking of the bread is significant. It points to the reality that Christ was broken, beaten, bruised, and given for us. My friend, these details are not in vain. Even our own Westminster Confession of Faith, the standards of our church, say that when the minister comes and stands behind this communion table, that as he takes the bread and he blesses it, he is to break it before the people. To show them in visible form what Christ has done for us. We not only have the bread, but we have the wine. In verse 25, the next symbol, the wine. And after the same manner, he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ chooses another item that was common to all, and that was wine. Every house had wine. This bears a remarkable color resemblance to blood. He could have chosen a host of he could have chosen water, but he chose wine. This is what the cup represents: the blood of Christ poured out for us. We are reminded of the shedding of blood without which there is no redemption. In the cup, it represents, as I said, the blood of Christ. The bread represents the broken body. All of it pointing to the crucified Savior upon the cross who bore in himself the sins of his people. The wrath of God poured out upon him. So as you come to this table, you are fixing your eyes upon the one who did this for me. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now I want you to realize that as Jesus actually gives them the bread 
and gives them the cup, that when Jesus gives them the bread, notice that it still remains bread. It is not changed in its form. There is no magical change of the outward elements. Scripture teaches clearly that these visible elements do not turn into the literal body and blood of our Lord. This is the era of transubstantiation. This is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. That our priests have power to transform the bread and wine into the literal body and blood of our Lord. My pastor growing up was raised in the Philadelphia area. And he was raised a Roman Catholic and he was an altar boy. And I remember him saying that there was a time when the priest went to put the host upon the tongue of a communicant. And the priest missed the tongue and the host fell to the ground. And he said there was a whole special ceremony in which the wafer was covered. Because that's not just a wafer. That's the body of Jesus. And there was a special ceremony to take care of that wafer that fell upon the ground. Now that might sound funny to you, but that's what they believe. They, they believe that it literally turns into the body and blood of the Lord. And unfortunately, in most Roman Catholic churches, and not most, but all of them, only part of the symbol is given to the people. They only get the host. They don't get the wine. Part of the symbol is withholding from the people of God. And what a danger that is. You and I should be given each, both the bread and the wine. To remember his broken body and his shed blood. And by doing this act of transubstantiation, as I said, it causes the Son of God to be crucified of flesh and put to open shame. But also the Lutherans and the Anglicans hold to another doctrine known as consubstantiation. And this means that at the same time, this means that at the same time, it is both bread and wine and the body and blood of Christ. Oh, it's bread and it's wine, but it's also the body and the blood. There's not much of a difference between these. There's no hocus pocus that happens with these elements. They are just bread and they are wine. And as we come to the supper, it is to remind us of the true Passover. The Lord Jesus Christ, who has forever removed our sin. We behold the two symbols of the Lord's broken body and shed blood. The bread and the wine. But what is the aim of this supper? The aim of it is, verse 24 and 25, this do in remembrance of me. This supper is a remembrance meal. In this we recall what Christ has accomplished for us in his passion. When you receive the bread from the hand of the minister, may you remember that it was Christ's body broken and given for you. When you receive the cup from the minister, may you remember that it was Christ's blood that has cleansed you and washed you from your sin. And by doing this, you spiritually feast upon Christ. Now, this is significant. As you and I partake of the bread and we partake of the wine, by faith, you and I spiritually commune with Jesus Christ. Just as the body needs daily food, so our spiritual man needs to be nourished. Our souls are nourished 
by this precious ordinance of the church as we look to Christ with the eye of faith. And I have never understood it in my years of preaching and pastoring that there would be people that would miss out on the Lord's table. They would say, well, you know, I only go to church Sunday morning and they're doing the Lord's Supper on Sunday night, so I'm just going to miss out. Why? This is a time that you can enjoy spiritual communion with Christ. Not only spiritual communion, but it is commanded to the child of God that they observe this ordinance. And why would you miss it? For a football game or for a movie or whatever it might be, this is a time of communion with God. Our souls are nourished as we partake of it. The third thing I want you to see is that we had seen, first of all, the corruption of the Lord's Supper. We have considered the institution of the Lord's Supper. But thirdly, I want you to see the proclamation of the Lord's Supper. In verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And the word show has the idea of proclaiming. That as, you do, as we do this this morning, we are actually proclaiming. That this is a visible declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is a visible and tangible display of the gospel. As each of the elements are explained, the gospel is preached. As a minister stands behind the table, he explains about the bread. He explains about the cup. And these elements point to his sacrificial death, the Lord's resurrection in his coming kingdom. And each time the Lord's Supper is remembered, there should always be a vivid picture of the gospel put before us. And many times people do not see it because their hearts have grown cold, no longer see the importance of the supper. There's nothing wrong with the Lord's Supper. There's nothing wrong with baptism. There's nothing wrong with the preaching of the word. And many times we get tired of these things. And I've known people, they say, well, you know, I don't like the idea of having the Lord's Supper once a month because it gets mundane. I don't like having it every week because it gets mundane. My friend, would you tire of seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ every week and having souls baptized every week? Is that something that you would grow tired of? I sure hope not. The problem is not with the ordinance. The problem is with the heart of the person. They have grown cold. They have lost sight of what it represents. Lost people should be encouraged. I've, I've of course, grown up in independent Baptist churches, and I've known many landmark Baptist churches where they dismiss all the lost people out of the service. If you are not a member of this church, you must leave. And all the members stay and then they participate in the Lord's Supper. I think that is seriously dangerous. I think it is very fitting that lost people are in the service. That they are observing what is going on. That they are seeing the visible, tangible presentation of the gospel through these elements. And they see the people that through this they are in union with Jesus Christ. And my friend, this is a great proclamation to the lost of their need of Jesus Christ. To the Christian we should be. This should be the highlight of our week. To join with God's people around the table and break the bread and drink the cup. For in this we are spiritually nourished 
And by faith we are partaking of the benefits that are procured for us by Christ's sacrificial death. The last thing I want to say is this, is there needs to be a careful observation of the Lord's Supper. I want to close on a very solemn note, because it's fitting. This is not a meal to take lightly. This is a serious matter. How serious, you may ask? I remember listening on the radio one day, one of my favorite radio preachers, Dr. Adrian Rogers. Dr. Rogers was preaching a sermon on the Lord's table. I remember he shared a story about a pastor in Arkansas, pastor a very large Southern Baptist church. And in this church, this church was bereft of problems, problem after problem after problem. There was constant division, backbiting, and there was division amongst the deacons. He said it was a horrible situation, and here the new pastor comes into it. And the pastor says, I believe I have an idea on what will fix this problem. And the pastor began observing the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. And as he observed the Lord's Supper every single Lord's Day, he said within a year, every single person that was in that church that was causing division, that was causing hurt to others within the congregation. He said within a year, he said he buried every single one of them. He said, can that really happen? The Bible says in verse number 30, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you. Many sleep. Those that sow discord among the brethren, those that come to this table in an unworthy manner, the Bible says they eat and drink damnation. Better, I think, translated judgment because you and I that are children of God will never be damned, but we can incur judgment. And as the Bible says here, we are chastened of the Lord. And those who are causing division in that church, guess what God did? He took them home early, as it were, because of the division and the problems they were causing. This is a serious matter. And my friend, this is a solemn supper that requires all of you committed to it. Now, I hope I have not scared you to death to not participate. But my friend, it is very important that you understand the seriousness of the table that is before us. There needs to be, first of all, under this careful observation, there needs to be an examination. The Bible tells us in verse 27 and verse number 28 that a man is to examine himself. Verse 27 says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. A strong warning is given to those that partake unworthily, and therefore a man is or a woman is to partake by examining themselves. But what does this mean? What does it mean to partake unworthily? We're all unworthy. But that's not what this scripture is saying. It's not saying if you're unworthy that you cannot partake. We're all unworthy. But we have been made worthy in Christ. That's not the issue here. 
The issue is partaking in an unworthy manner. And I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 97, brings this out. It says this, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 97. What is required for the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? Answer. It is required of them that they would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, and of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. So let me sum that up. Dr. Roderick Lawson, who gave a short uh, brief statements about the confession, he said this, We are here taught the proper qualifications for receiving the Lord's Supper. They are five. Number one, if we are to properly receive the Lord's Supper and do so in a worthy manner, he says, number one, there must be knowledge sufficient to understand what, what is represented by it. That as you and I come to the table, we need to know what this represents. We need to know that this represents the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and I'm doing this in remembrance of him. That's the first requirement to partake in a worthy manner. Secondly, faith. Faith sufficient to believe that as the bread which we eat sustains our bodies, so the bread of life which it represents will sustain our souls. This is what we are to remember, that this bread sustains our body, but it is the true bread of life that sustains our soul. This is something we need to remember. Number three, repentance from all known sin. This does not mean that if you have unknown sins, that there's sins of ignorance. You know, that's not what's being talked about. Any known sin, anything that you know that is separating you between you and your God, you need to make sure that you get cleansed of it. That you ask the Lord of heaven to forgive you. And this is why it's important when, when we come together that we make sure that our hearts are right as we come to this table. He says, number four, love to God and man. This is not evident in the church of Corinth at this time because there was schism. There was not love for God and man. The rich were over here eating all their food, neglecting the poor, and the poor were hungry and they had nothing. There was bitter division. In this church at Corinth. And to properly participate in the Lord's table. We need love to God and man. And he says last of all. Our resolution henceforth. To act up to every known duty. That is to be resolved. To follow God. Resolved to obey God. Resolved to obey his word. That I am through this. When the Lord Jesus said. Here is my body given for you. In other words, our response should be to that, Lord, here is my body. I give it to you. That we are giving ourselves to him. He has given ourselves himself for us and to us. And we are to give ourselves to him in his service, to serve him. So we see here that there is to be an examination that we are to partake in a worthy manner. And secondly, if we do not partake in a worthy manner, there will be judgment. Verse 29, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily 
eateth and drinketh damnation or judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. This verse is not teaching that if a man partakes unworthily, that he will actually incur the damnation of hell. For it is not possible for a man that has been elected, foreordained, predestined, called, justified, to be ever cast into hell. That is impossible. The word better carries the idea of judgment, as I said. Very clearly, we must not partake of this supper in a flippant way. This is a serious matter with serious consequences of chastisement for the child of God who partakes in an unworthy manner. The extent of the fatherly chastisement is seen in verse number 30, where we see that many are weak and sickly among you. That God actually through fatherly chastisement <coughs> brought bodily illness to some because of their blatant disrespect to this supper. And some were even cut off in the flower of their age. Some have fallen asleep. They have died. But notice what he says in verse number 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. This is your responsibility. You need to judge yourself. You need to examine yourself lest you be chastened by God. Verse number 32. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. That we should not be condemned with the world. Notice he's not condemning you. He's chastening you. There's a difference between the chastening hand of God and the condemnation of God. We incur fatherly discipline, the world condemnation and wrath. So we must be careful to examine ourselves as we approach the table. We must make preparations for spiritual sweet communion with Christ. To not do so is of great cost. So are you here but living in open and unrepentant sin? You need to ask the Lord to forgive you. Are you just going through the motions and partaking without realizing it is spiritual communion with Christ? If so, repent this moment and ask God to prepare your heart to receive the spiritual blessings that flow from this supper. As long as it, how long has it been since you are consciously aware that you are communing with the living Christ through this supper? Communion with him. Will you put before your eyes afresh the broken, bruised, and bleeding Savior of sinners? Will you put before your eyes again the one whose blood speaks better things than that of evil? Before us today are the simple elements of bread and wine. Will they point us to the crucified, resurrected, and soon coming King? How long do we continue in the supper, you might ask? Pastor, how long do we continue doing this? How long does God want us to continue this activity? We are to do this until he comes again. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Mark said in Mark 14, 25, Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new 
in the kingdom of God. I love the hymn uh, that said, Christ will gird himself and serve us with sweet manna all around. There is a day coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will no longer be your minister standing before you, but one day you will be the great minister, the great bishop of the souls of men, serving his people with the wine and with the bread, with sweet manna all around, and we will enter the glory there. And when we enter, there will no longer be any further need of this table, for all of it pointed to Christ. For what is it pointing to will be before our eyes throughout all of eternity. Let us now gather around the table and taste and see that the Lord is certainly good unto his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord today. We thank you for the truths of Holy Scripture. And God, it is our desire that God, that we would truly honor you, Lord, with our lives. God, and it is our desire today that as we would take the bread and take the cup, that God, that we might be even reminded today that God, as we, as the bread actually nourishes our body, so the bread of life nourishes our souls. God, what rich truths there are in such simple elements. God, how beautiful and how glorious they are. So God, we pray. Bless our time together around the table. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.